If you haven't already, will you open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 and following through the end of chapter 6. You look at that and you go, whew, that's a lot. Well, we won't read every verse, but we will get there. If you're our guest and you haven't been with us, we are going through verse by verse the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah, of all the Old Testament books, is the second most quoted uh, by New Testament authors. And it is one that speaks to us about the church age and speaks to us primarily about our relationship with God. And that's why I've entitled the sermon series, Being God's People. In chapters uh, 1 through 6, there are eight visions And when I first started looking at this as a pastor, I kind of went, I don't know if I want to preach that. I mean, that's kind of got some weird stuff in there. People are not going to know what to think. But I mean, think about it. Some of you have dreams. I'm not talking about the type of dreams that you hope that your children will grow up to do this and go there. I'm talking about the kind that like weird stuff happens at night when you're sleeping in your brain, you know. Your subconscious, like, you know, you're riding on a piece of broccoli, swinging a car around by a lasso, you know, chasing bad guys or something like that. You know, those weird things that come out of your subconscious and you're going, where did this come from? Some of these visions in the book of Zechariah are kind of like riding a piece of broccoli, swinging around a car on a lasso. I mean, you're like, what in the world is going on here? Well, my job here this morning is to help you understand what's going on here. And what I can assure you is, unlike riding a piece of broccoli, swinging a lasso around with an automobile at the end, these visions here all have significance and all have meaning. They go back in the Old Testament and God's relationship with His people, and every image has a meaning. And it's a meaning that's got a lot of depth that, frankly, I can't even cover in the 30 minutes or so I'm going to be up here preaching. And so I'm just going to touch on them and say, hey, listen, it's here and here's what it means and we're going to move on to the next thing. But the other part they do is they point us forward. So when we think about Zechariah's eight visions, let's just review. The first one there was this man on a red horse in chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. And it's about God's dominion over Israel's rebuilding that they had been sent away into captivity because they had sinned. They had been judged by God. Now God was bringing them back, and he told them, you've got to rebuild the temple as a symbol of my presence among you, and when you're obedient to me in that, then I'm going to bless you in all these other ways. That second vision was four horns and four craftsmen. Again, uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, the horns, symbols of war, the craftsmen, common workmen that were going to repair the war, and God's judgment on Israel's persecutors. So even though they had been persecuted, God was going to then turn around and judge those folks. And what you see happening here with these visions is sort of like a V. If you can imagine a gigantic V. God first announces in that first vision that I'm in charge here. But then what you have is God talking about his relationship with his people in visions 2 and 3. Then visions 4 and 5 kind of make up the bottom of the V. And they're about the two men that will primarily be the leaders in Israel's recovery. Then going up the other side here is God removing, uh, well, i got to get that right. God removing wickedness from Israel. So let's go to the next slide there. The next slide, the third vision, is about the surveyor, and that's God's great future for Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to take care of you. But then you get visions 4 and 5 here in chapter 3, verse 1 and 10, and chapter 4. 
And what it's about, the cleansing of the high priest, Joshua, and then the lampstand and the olive trees we'll get to today about Zerubbabel, the governor, the man who would lead the rebuilding, is about these men that God has prepared to lead his people in his work. And so it's a hinge between vision four and five. We get, we're removing sin from you and uh, uh, on the one side, and we're returning you to God's house, and then ver- uh, visions four and five. Now the next slide. Vision six there about the flying scroll we'll talk about today. God's going to judge Israel's sin. But vision seven, the women in the basket, he's going to remove their sin from their midst. And then that final vision, vision eight, is that God's sovereignty over all creation. So when I entitled this sermon with one word, that's where I landed. Sovereignty. Because everything that you had happen to the people of Israel, God's people, was his sovereign will. That he called them to be his people, even though they were small among the nations. And he blessed them as his people, uh, even though they were rebellious. And he caused other nations to come in as his instrument and judge them for their wickedness in order to get their attention, to help purify them, to get them back to a right relationship with him in being God's people. It's the sovereignty of God that's at work in all of this. But look at how he does it among his people. That's our key verse for this month, October. Our key scripture verse, and we'll put that up there, and we'll cover it in just a moment, but let's say it, the reference, the verse and the reference again together right now. Zechariah 4, 6. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 4, 6. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you this morning, and even the fact that we bow our heads and close our eyes in order to focus our minds' attention and our hearts' affection on you demonstrates that we know that you're above us, that you are sovereign, and we need to worship you and be humble before you. And God, we recognize that you are the creator of the earth, the sustainer of the earth, and the very redeemer of the entire earth in every individual life within it that turns to you. We heard J.L.'s testimony as he talked about all the things that he chased after and that when he finally met you, how you changed his heart. And we see that repeated again and again throughout the pews and with our brothers and sisters gathered together here this morning. And we pray now, as we take a look at these visions, that we would not get caught in things that sound kind of weird, but we would see the meaning in them and see the fact that you are God and you are sovereign and you will do sometimes amazing, incredible, miraculous, even hard things in order to get our attention to draw us back to a relationship with you because You love us. So God, we humble ourselves before you. And we look forward to your spirit working in this place, just as the scripture says. It's not anything we're going to do on our own, but it's your spirit who will restore us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. So your first blanks on your outline, the first major point, is that God secures his people's future. God secures his people's future. Now, hopefully, if you're an adult, 
and you're in charge of your household or in partnership with your spouse in uh, shepherding and stewarding your household, you have some plans for your future. That you've made a budget, that you stick to that financially, and that you are setting money aside for uh, you know, expenses in the future and college and those sorts of things. But more than financially, you think about the type of person you will be in the future and what you will do in the future and how you're going to get there. You also think about physically, that I've got this body that God's given me to be a steward over. So how should I treat this body and what I put into it and how I exercise it or use it as a steward as we think about our future? We've got our part to do with our future, but the bottom line and where we get an amen is that God secures our future. This vision, this first vision, if you look at it with me, so Zechariah is in one night, and uh, it says there in chapter 4, verse 1, Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. Now it's interesting. The other visions, it was like it was, it was nighttime, but Zechariah was already awake. Did he get too wore out by the first four visions that he was like asleep here? I don't know, but it says he awakened him as a man is wakened from his sleep. In other words, he might not have been asleep, but he was, you know, just dazed or something. And the angel had to say, hey, man, pay attention. I got more to tell you. And the angel asked him, what do you see? And Zechariah recounts for us. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it. And there are seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Verse 4, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Verse 5, he answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. Now, Zechariah probably had some ideas because if this lampstand was likened to other ones that were used in Israelite worship, he would know what it looks like. You know the kind of lampstand with the one thing in the middle, then three going out either side, and so it has this nice form to it, and there's seven, uh, uh, it's called a lampstand, but like candelabra type thing. And in the worship of God and his people, the Jewish people, they'd use something like this going back to the tabernacle. And then when Solomon built his temple, he had 10 of these gigantic lampstands built. And they would be trimmed regularly. And they used olive oil is what they used to burn them. So here you have this vision of a lampstand with the seven parts. But instead of somebody having to come to give oil to them, there were two olive trees And each one of those olive trees was attached by channels to this. Keep in mind, it's a vision. Continually feeding oil to this lampstand. What's the other thing we know about oil? Oil in the Old Testament is used for anointing. Would anoint God's person either to empower them or to give them some authority or position. And so you see this picture that here's a lampstand, symbolic in its burning of God's presence among his people. Oil, God's presence continually coming, not just as somebody comes and feeds it, but from these olive trees continually coming. And here, let's go on. So he said in verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Okay, so Zerubbabel is the governor of the people at this time that need to rebuild the temple. And so the angel is saying to Zechariah, 
The oil coming into this lampstand and the light coming from the lampstand is the word of God to Zerubbabel. In other words, this is something that's supernatural. This is not by Zerubbabel's doing. This is something that I am doing. And notice he goes further to say, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That fire, that oil, those things are symbolic of God's Spirit. Verse 7, what are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? He's maybe referring to the mountain of rubbish of what the temple had been, that no stone uh, had been left on top of it and the city had been destroyed 70 years before. Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone and shouts, God bless it, God bless it. In other words... Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. And he's going to do it by my power, God says. That's where I get the point. God secures his people's future. So we've got to ask ourselves a question to apply this to us. And that is, what concerns me about the future? What concerns me about the future? And you might mark out the... And maybe put my. Make it even more personal. We could look around and we could have our concerns about the future when we look at our world and you think about things like global warming or political unrest or, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, People doing ugly things based on all sorts of whatever they believe and treating others like we prefer they didn't treat them. But what concerns me about my future? What about your life? I would say to your friends, if you're doing God's work, your work, his work through you is going to succeed. If you're doing your work, I'm not going to guarantee it's going to succeed. If it doesn't elevate God, it most likely elevates you, and then you've set yourself up as an idol before God. We've got to seek God in order that he might speak to us about our future. How do you do that? Every day, read your Bible. Every day, if you can't read it, listen to it. Use a Bible app or something like that so that you're getting Scripture into your life. Every day, go to the Lord in prayer. And I mean, not just one time, not just at bedtime, not just at mealtime, but throughout the day in a conversation with God. Every day, speak with others about your relationship with God, about what He's talking to you about and how they might help you discern His will. Every day you could write and consider and write out prayers, write out questions, write out observations from Scripture. There are simple things that we can do to walk close to God so that we will hear from Him about His future for us. And even though we still have our concerns, we'll know His sovereignty. Let's move on to our next point there. God judges His people's sins. This is a short vision. It's a flying scroll. Okay, I talked earlier about, you know, writing on a piece of broccoli or whatever, but look at this one. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. That is one big honking scroll, okay? I mean, that's a scroll the size of a school bus, and it's flying. 
So this is obviously a vision. It's weird. Verse 3. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. According to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. Well, you think about the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, don't lie, don't steal, all these sort of things are on there. And they were written on two sides. And this is written on two sides. And he says, verse 4, The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stone. So the fourth vision, the end of last week, the fifth vision, the beginning of this week, are about the leaders But here you have a turn in the way the visions are talking about. The visions are talking about here is the community as a whole and the sinfulness of the individuals. And really what it's talking about in this one is their unrepentance. Last week we talked about you people need to repent. Here's how you've sinned. You need to repent. But what this vision is getting after is you folks are continuing on in your sinfulness, at least some of you are, and you are unrepentant. And because you are unrepentant, you will still be judged. That's what it's about. There's no room for complacency. Sin must be taken seriously. We've got more to say about this topic, but we'll cover that within our exposition of the next vision, the women in the basket, starting in verse 5. Let's turn to our question here. How has God's justice affected me? God just said in this vision, I'm going to judge you for your unrepentance. You know what you should do. You're still carrying on in your sin. But in application to my life and your life, how is God's justice, the fact that He is holy, righteous, completely other, and he's got a standard of justice of right and wrong that's not like any of our standard because his is uh, perfect. How's it affected me? This is a nice way of me asking, how has God judged you? Can you look at your life and can you say, yeah, I know there's times God has judged me, that my sin led to consequences. And I can't blame it on anybody else, although I try to blame it on everybody else because that's human nature, but that I know that it was God who judged me because I'm the one that sinned. Did you sin? Yeah, we're all sinners. Did we deserve God's judgment? Yeah, we all need God's judgment. Write down a few Scripture references, so I'll read them to you on your outline. Isaiah 6.3. Isaiah 6.3, write that one down. You need to look it up later because it says, And one called to another, saying, these are the angels around the throne, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That God is not just holy, and He's not just holy, holy. He's holy times three. In Hebrew, when you wanted to make emphasis for something, you said it two times. You said, Amen, Amen. Yes, yes, no, no. But here, three times, God is holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord God. Listen to what Ezekiel 39, 7 says. Write down that reference, Ezekiel 39, 7. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned, taken advantage of, because the way my people live, 
anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. God says, I'm holy, and I'm going to make my name be holy among my people. And because of my people, everybody will know of my holiness. Friends, you and I aren't Israel. We're the church, but we're his people today. And he judges our sin because he's holy, but he does it in order to bring glory to his name. One more scripture to write down here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. And it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter is written to Christ followers, the church, you and I. And it says, since God is holy, we should seek to be holy. And if you're like me, you might be at a bit of a conundrum right now because you know you can't do it on your own. What did our key verse of the month say? It's on the top of your outline. It's verse 6 of chapter 4. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Friends, let me take a quick aside here. If you've been dealing with some sin in your life, some habit that you can't seem to overcome, I have to ask you, have you been trying by your might or your power? Or have you fully submitted to God's spirit to let it be his might and his power? And his sovereignty at work in your life. Just a question for us to consider. We need to move on to our seventh vision. Our seventh vision. And that point for us to make. The third major point on your outline. Is that God removes his people's sins. God removes his people's sins. Can I get an amen. That God removes his people's sin. There's this picture of a woman in a basket. And it says, then the angel of the Lord was speaking and came forward and said to me, look up, what is it that you see appearing? And he, Zechariah, he asked questions. I like Zechariah. I ask questions too. I asked, what is it? He replied, it's a measuring basket, an ephah basket. An ephah is a standard unit of measurement among the Israelite people. And it's a five-gallon basket, like a bushel basket, if you imagine, right? And so this basket was something that everybody, by the word ephah, that's the word in Hebrew, it's translated um, basket in ours, that, that measuring basket, everybody would know what he was talking about. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of the basket was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. Now, this is where it gets to be one of those visionary things. It's a little bit odd, because if it's a five-gallon basket, a lady a regular-sized human adult lady is not going to fit in it, right? I mean, a baby hardly fits in that sort of thing. But it's a vision, so go on with the vision. And what does he say there? Then, verse 9, I looked up, and before me were... Oh, excuse me, I need to go back to verse 7. And a woman, a basket sat a woman. Verse 8, he said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Now, translators have dealt with this one, and they would say to us that the woman herself is not wickedness personified, but the basket itself with the woman in it, for whatever reason, is 
a vision of wickedness and the wickedness of the people. And what does the angel, God's messenger, do? He covers that wickedness. Verse 9, Then I looked up, and there before me were two women, and they had the wind in their wings. Most women don't have wings. I don't know. Ladies, any of you got wings? I know some of you... Ladies, make it look like you got wings. You can fly around and get stuff done when us men, our heads are just spinning or we're just asleep on the couch. I got an amen there. Watch out. They had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And they were taking the basket. I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. Now, In our first sermon about these visions, last week, we talked about that the temple of God was symbolic of God's presence among the people, and that the nation of Babylon was symbolic of evil. So when these ladies with wings like a stork take the basket that is symbolic of all the wickedness and sinfulness of the people, and they're taking it to Babylon, they're removing sin from God's presence. And notice what it said there, and it translates it not right for us. And where are they taking it? They will build a house for it. The Hebrew literally says they're going to build a pedestal, a pillar for it. Like you would put something on that you're going to worship. And the basket will be set in its place. What God is saying is I'm going to remove sinfulness from my people and I'm going to put it among a sinful people and put it up on a thing where the sinful people can worship the sinfulness because that's what they do. That's where we get our point. God removes his people's sins. We can be so very thankful for that. You've got a question of application there. What promises of God should I embrace? I mean, Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5 through 11, there's not a scripture in there you're going to memorize and say, yes, this reminds me that God is sovereign and God's going to take away my sin. You're going to go, well, that's kind of a funky vision. I'm glad Pastor Aaron explained it to me. But you think about sin. Sin's addictive. It's dangerous. It's harmful. It can be destructive. And so we need to think about the promises of God in relation to sin. That Psalm 103 verse 12 says, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Then a few for you to write down. Deuteronomy 4.29. I love Deuteronomy 4.29 because it, it has this but And that butt swings everything. Because before verse 29, it's here's all the sinfulness and here's how bad everything is going to be and how the people will be judged. But listen to what Deuteronomy 4.29 says. But if from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and all your soul. God is saying even if you are at the depths of your life and even if in your sinfulness you've been judged and the consequences are piling on you and you think, how did I get here and I'm at my bottom? Scripture says, but if from there you seek God, he's going to restore you. He's going to redeem you. 
That's a promise you should embrace. Deuteronomy 4.29, write it down if you hadn't already. Lamentations 3, 40, 41 and 42 says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. In other words, it says we need to turn to God when we know that we have sinned in order that he will forgive. In Hosea ten twelve, write that one down. Hosea ten twelve says, Sow righteousness for yourself and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and send righteousness on you like the rain. God desires to remove our sins, have us pure and holy. Have a life that is unfettered by the burden of sinfulness in order that we might be who he intends us to be. As we live in his promises, as people pursuing him. That leads us to our fourth and final major point this morning. That God brings his people rest. God brings his people rest. There's times when you just got to get away, isn't there? The stress of your life, whether you caused it or not, circumstances are on you and you are burdened and you're weary, you're tired and you want to just give up, but you know you can't and you need some rest. Maybe that rest is just a short aside, something you do, prayer, Bible study, a hobby, exercise, a walk, prayer journaling, art, something you do that brings you rest. Maybe that rest, if you can afford the time and and, uh, the expense, is to get away somewhere, to be away from the circumstances in order that you might get some distance physically, but also to get some distance mentally and emotionally. Get rest. Jesus said that He will give us rest. He promised that in Scripture. But look at this passage of Scripture, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The last of our visions brings us to the culmination of everything that God has said through these kind of crazy to us visions of Zechariah. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Now, we've seen four here many times. In these eight visions, we've seen Four horsemen, four horse, four horns, four craftsmen. And now we see four chariots. Chariots were symbolic of war. God's people knew that. The Philistines, you know, you always hear about the Philistines being the bad guys in the Old Testament, right? I mean, even Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines were the guys that introduced chariots first. They kind of borrowed them from the Egyptians, and they came with their chariots as weapons of war against God's people, Israel. So when you see chariots, you think about war. But the four chariots are coming out from between two mountains, and not just any mountains, bronze mountains. Now, that would be symbolic to God's people, too, because when Solomon built a temple, he built two gigantic bronze columns on either side of it that were 30 feet tall and 15 feet around. And these bronze columns, symbolic of God's presence. So what do you think they hear when they hear this last vision? 
They see God is sending some folks to judge from his presence between these bronze columns. Now, look at what it says then. The first chariot had a red horse, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. Again, we see these different colors of the horses. You can make a lot of hay, I said that on purpose, about what nations these symbolize, but that's not the important part. All of them powerful, and I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? Look at verse 5. The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord the whole uh, of the whole world. The one with the black horse is going toward the north country. The one with the white horse towards the west. And the um, one with the dappled horse towards the south. Verse 7, when these powerful horses went out and they were straining to go throughout the earth, And he said, go throughout the earth, so they went throughout the earth. In other words, they were pulling against their reins, ready to go, rearing up. And God sends them out to judge the earth. Verse 8, then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. What was different about the north country? Well, The north country was symbolic of Jerusalem, of God's presence among his people, of that place that they were going to rebuild the temple, God's temple in Jerusalem, that was symbolic of God's presence among his people. And so what the vision is saying, the angel of the Lord and Zechariah seeing the vision, the angel's interpretation of it is that the angel or that the chariot that went out to the north with the black horse didn't have to do anything, didn't have to bring destruction or judgment because God's presence was already there. This last vision and this last verse of this last vision is saying that God has brought his people rest. All the stuff that they had gone through being carried off into captivity, the 70 years in captivity, coming back and not rebuilding the temple, but building their own houses, and God coming to speak to them through Haggai and Zechariah now and telling them, hey, you guys better get busy. you got to build this temple. you got to have my presence among you. All that stuff he's saying, you obeyed, and I'm here. You confessed, and I forgave. God brings his people rest. Your question of application is where do I need peace in my life? Where do you need rest? Where do you need to get away? Is there an area of your life that if you could just change it, you would? You've heard me say, you know, I wish I had a magic Bible. And I'm joking, of course, because any reference of magic in the Bible is that it's from Satan, not from God. But sometimes I wish I had a magic Bible. And when somebody was misbehaving, I would take my magic Bible and, here, let's do it like this. Whop them on the head. And when I whopped them on the head, it would ring some sense into them and they'd straighten out. I mean, don't you wish you could do that, parents? Don't you wish you could whop your children? Spouses, don't you wish you could whop your spouse? Straighten them out. But there's sometimes you don't want to whop people because you love them and because the circumstances are against them. So you wouldn't whop them then. You would just kind of wave the magic Bible over their head. And then all the ugly circumstances and all the hurtful things would go away and their life would be perfect and at peace and at rest. 
There are times when as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, I sit with you and I cry with you and I cry out in my own prayers for you that God, would you give this person rest? Would you take away these painful circumstances, health, neighbors, job, family? Would you restore them to peace? I know you pray those ways too. It's a pleasure, a privilege to be on our prayer chain. Friends, I need to remind us, if you're not on our church prayer chain already, just let me know. Let Silvana know. Get on there. A lot of our prayer requests are about health, but you can ask us to pray for somebody that needs to trust Christ as their Savior. We've got a special group that prays for those as well. You can ask us to pray for a circumstance at work, somebody in your family in a relationship. If you don't ask the whole prayer chain because maybe it's a little too sensitive, ask somebody. Get more people on your side invoking the sovereign God's presence and power on your behalf to bring you peace, to bring you rest wherever you need it. Hebrews 12, 14. I should have told you, don't put up your outline. Hebrews 12, 14, you ought to write this down. I know I get the last blanks and you guys go, close your Bibles and you're done. It says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. We know we should pursue peace, but some folks, we just soon whop them because they're, they're hard to deal with. But listen to what God says in Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. Write that one down. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You know people like this? That their life just seems to be turmoil. And you're like, how do you live like this? Oh, my word. And you think, I used to live like that. And you try to tell them, there's a better way. There's Jesus. And they're just so caught up in it, they don't even want to hear Scripture says that, Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. But listen to what God says about His gift of peace for His people. Psalm 29, 11, write that one down. Psalm 29, 11. The Lord gives His people strength. The Lord blesses His people with peace. Some of you need to write that one down. Some of you need to memorize that one. Some of you need to tattoo that on the back of your eyelids, okay? The Lord gives His people strength. Say it again. The Lord blesses His people with peace. You need some strength. You need some peace in your life. Psalm 29, 11 says you get it from God. Not from yourself. Not from someone else. Not from a hobby. Not from a pursuit. But from a personal relationship with God. So how do I get it? Romans 5, 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Your last one to write down. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You could preach a whole sermon on that one. Did you hear that? We've been justified through faith. In other words, it's our faith that makes us right with God, that settles our account. Because we have faith, God forgives our sins and we're right with Him. And we have peace because we're in a relationship with Christ. And we've gained access by faith into His grace. It's grace that God's relationship with us is. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Because of the grace we're in by faith, we've got peace in our life. We've got rest in our life. And we boast in that hope. And when people say, what's different about your life? You're like, Jesus. 
My life isn't perfect. I mess up. I still sin. Bad stuff still happens to me, but I have Jesus on the inside of me, and it's by grace that I stand. Friend, God despises sin and its destructive ability in your life. But God loves you. And because he loves you, he will go to any extent it takes to get your attention, even if it's whopping you on the head, in order that you might desire to have a restored relationship with him. He calls it repentance. When we stop going the direction we're going, we confess to God that, yes, this sin is sin, and we turn and go a different direction. That's how you get peace. That's how you get rest. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so sovereign that even though there are 66 books in the Bible written over 1,500 years by 39 different guys, that it all fits together because you inspired it and you're sovereign. And so, God, we embrace your message this morning that you desire a relationship with us and in your sovereignty... You will control circumstances in our life in order to get our attention not to hurt us, not to harm us, but because you love us. And you want us to turn back to you. And you give us hope. And you give us peace. And you give us rest because of your grace. So God, our Father, we rejoice in the grace in which we stand. And we pray in the name of Jesus, if there's anyone here today that needs to confess a sin, that they would do that privately, even publicly, whatever you call them to do. If there's a relationship that's broken in this place, that as we stand and sing, that one person would walk to another and ask forgiveness and seek restoration. If that person we need to talk to is not here, walk out that door, walk out in the hallway or outside and get them on the cell phone right now and say, will you forgive me? I need peace in my relationship with you because I need peace in my relationship with God. God's promise that he'll restore us. God, would you bring us rest and peace by your sovereignty? And certainly, God, for the person who's never trusted Christ as their Savior, would they do that today? If they need to and they recognize their sinfulness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.